It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show today a professor of biology at York University, Dasantilla Galemi Katra, and we're here to talk to her about an article she authored in The Conversation, which you can go to theconversation.ca and look it up and find out more, read along or read about more that uh, we're going to be talking about here in the show today. The article is called Omicron, How Is It Different From Other Variants? Is It a Super Variant? Can It Evade Vaccines? How transmissible is it? All great questions. I know we've all been asking many of those same questions around this. We've heard a lot of discussion around this. So it is such a pleasure to have uh, Desantilla here. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her. She finished her PhD from Wayne State University in Michigan. Her research uh, thesis was uh, focused on understanding the mechanism of antibiotic resistance to bacteria, in bacteria rather. And she then continued her postdoctoral training at Yale University, researching on strategies to design small proteins to tackle interactions of biological molecules involved in cancer and viral infections. As an independent researcher at York University, she focuses on microbial infections and, in particular, microbial responses to anti-chemotherapeutic agencies. And besides using big words, she uh, also loves to be loves teaching microbiology and helping uh, to get students to appreciate the chemistry of microbial life and understand infectious diseases at the molecular level. So uh, welcome, Desantilla, to the show today. And thank you for taking the time to join us on the show to talk about this article. Well, I'm happy to be here. And thank you, actually, for the kind introduction. Yeah, my pleasure. Now, your article, as we mentioned, it's all about uh, Omicron. And uh, these are very, very interesting questions that you, you bring up. I, and I have to say, I'd really like to just sort of run through the article because I think it rolls out very nicely. As I was reading it, uh, questions came to my mind. And then a little bit later on, they were answered as I was reading further down here. This Omicron variant... Uh, came out of South Africa. That was where it was first identified in early November, and uh, and how it spread very rapidly. I just want to ask you one thing. I'm not sure about even the name of of the Omicron. How did how did the name come about for Omicron? Do you know? So WHO um, decided quite early on when uh, many variants of the SARS CoV two um, virus actually were emerging. And it became a, 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 a problem, actually, um, uh, ensuring that whoever was talking about a particular variant of this virus was talking about the same variant. Mm. And uh, in the beginning, it was a little bit uh, difficult, actually challenging to remember the names. Yeah. We call B117 oh, yeah. was sure. the, the alpha one. So they decided actually to use um, Greek letters. Mm. And uh, when it came to Omicron, actually, they did jump two letters mm. uh, in the Greek alphabet. And I believe the reason for that, although no explanation was provided, is was because it would have been very difficult to uh, pronounce them. Ah, I see. And uh, so Omicron was, uh, it, it, it's, it has a bit more presence, actually, at mm. least that's my explanation. 
Yeah, because they did actually skip the the knee. There were issues right. actually other people would know how to pronounce the Greek yes. letter, so they moved to Omicron because it's much more uh, simple. So, uh, so that was done from the WHO. And again, to make it simple for the scientists to communicate with each other as more variants were emerging, but also for the public to be able to follow that science. I see. Now, it also makes sense when you say they jumped a couple of letters in the alphabet, the Greek alphabet, to come up with the, the name Omicron because of the way you've been, you describe and what we've heard about this uh, variant uh, being potentially a, a super bug. And, and it seems to have rapidly changed itself from what you're saying in your article. Uh, it seems to have baffled scientists looking at it because it's it's made these enormous changes within itself in a very very quick period of time indeed actually so when we look at other variants like the alpha the first one that became variant of concern and then beta and gamma simultaneously one in south africa and gamma in in brazil and then delta emerged in um, in india or at least first identified there. Um, these variants actually, first of all, they had fewer mutations. Mm. But in addition, it took um, um, a bit of time for them to emerge. In the sense, it wasn't sort of one variant with uh, 32 mutations in a single gene or mm. a single protein, the S, the spike protein. So um, the way the discovery of the Omicron went is that it just very quickly baffled people. Um, yeah. The first sequence came out, I believe, um, internally uh, sometime in mid of November. And then as soon as it went to the tweets that scientists actually communicate with each other, everybody got concerned because just too many of this mutation in sort of so short. I mean, uh, South Africa or African countries, for that matter, hadn't reported actually sort of emerging new variants. Mm. This just came out. There was uh, the beta there, but still had very fewer uh, mutations. And then you go from nine mutations to all the way 32. So what yeah. happened in between? Um, so that's uh, sort of uh, uh, made the people that were working with this virus actually very concerned. Uh, uh, mutations is nothing new. Um, you know, right. any living organisms undergoes mutation because uh, that's the natural law to evolve and adapt. Uh, human cells actually undergo mutations, but in a very, very minute uh, manner. That's why we get cancer, for example, uh, being a big issue nowadays. Mm. Um, so nothing new with that, but just as you pointed, uh, it, it, this thing just emerged with 32 mutations in one single protein, in total 50, uh, sort of out of nowhere. Mm. And there are theories out there. Uh, but uh, the, uh, um, the concern was that this may probably uh, have more to say, this particular variant. We have these vaccines that we're using now, and we're not sure about the effectiveness of it against the Omicron variant. They're going to uh, transform. They're going to mutate. The common cold goes through the same process, doesn't it? Correct. So, Correct, it does. So is there any potential evidence or, or thought around the fact that uh, the, these uh, viruses can find the vaccine and, and say, well, this is something I have to get around and are using that as a tool to create more mutations for themselves. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. A uh, good point, actually. And I've heard this comment just the other day and I had to explain to the person that I was talking uh, to about exact, precise, actually the same uh, point that you raised. So what you're saying is that, is there a concern that the vaccines actually may uh, uh, play the role of a selection mm. pressure? Mm. I mean, uh, 
And this is how, for example, antibiotic resistance evolves. You know, you have antibiotics trying to treat a bug and that sort of puts a pressure on the bug to, to evolve. The vaccines actually um, don't function like that. Okay. I mean, you got an immune system uh, that is based on antibodies and a cellular immune system to um, identify the, the pathogen, eliminate it by killing it. And the identification is done through uh, antibodies. So when vaccination uh, uh, is done, you don't have a single antibody that is produced by the organism, by the host. You have a number of them. Mm. So therefore, the selection pressure becomes quite hard to be achieved by the virus when you have uh, when you introduce or administer vaccines. Uh, there is indeed a real concern, for example, with monoclonal antibodies treatment. And there have been a number of reports uh, about this because there are single um, uh, uh, antibodies Mm. that put a strong stress on the organism to evolve and escape. Mm. But the way the host works is it's it's organic in a way. The host has evolved, our body has evolved to produce a a range of antibodies just for precise that purpose through Mm. evolution. It became more um, uh, uh, protective to have a series of soldiers, each with different role, if you will, to eliminate the pathogen rather than having a single soldier or a single type of soldier to uh, attack the enemy. So that's where the difference is. And that's how, um, you know, one can explain why the vaccines really do not play the selection pressure to select for variants, meaning for, uh, for mutation, mutants uh, of this virus. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. As humans, we grow, we don't mature until we're 15, 16. You know, it takes us years to become fully, fully grown adults. And then, of course, uh, that's our, our physicality. Then our mental uh, capacities are still maturing in things until we're into our 20s, perhaps. Viruses, they... Because they are much simpler, I guess, in some ways, they can adapt and change much more rapidly. Uh, a very nice point, actually. Very, very good uh, angle uh, to, to this uh, uh, issue, actually. Indeed, it's a much simpler organism. It's a, um, it's a, a I wouldn't, and I'm not speaking correctly here when I say it's a unicellular organism. Mm. But it, it becomes a unicellular organism. Only because it's a parasite, right? Only when it infects the whole uh, the the host. But indeed, is a uh, sort of uh, it can uh, uh, act independently as a single um, particle, uh, unlike complex organisms, for reasons such as animals, plants, including mm. here mammals like uh, humans, like us, that we are much more complex and we depend on different parts of the body to really uh, get that final functioning, if you will. Right. It has to react that quickly because if it if it couldn't do that, then it would die out, wouldn't it? It has to move, it has to move indeed, quickly. Indeed, indeed. I mean, viruses and uh, and microorganisms such as bacteria have been on Earth for billions of years. Right. We are no vice to them. <laughs> right. These organisms have seen much harsher conditions and mm. much more adverse conditions than humans are putting them through. So, in a way, you know, through uh, this evolution process, they evolved to adapt. Uh, quickly, uh, the mechanism, the processes that occur are very fast. I mean, it's 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 fascinating how that all actually uh, uh, happens, yeah. and so therefore, um, that's why actually they are a, a problem for uh, you know large organisms like us or plants or and animals in general. Yes. 
Now, uh, we've talked a little bit about how the Omicron variant is different than some of the others. Uh, you certainly uh, talked about how it has got about, what, 32 or 52 mutations that it has gone through uh, very quickly. What else makes this different? Uh, yes, indeed. So in total, there are about uh, uh, 50 mutations that this particular vari- variant has accumulated and in a way accommodated because actually it's functioning quite well. Mm. Um, so, and the key is, not, uh, especially in the number of mutations in a single protein in a, such a short amount of time, seemingly short amount of time. And I can expand further in this sort of short amount of time as to what it means if need be. And um, so there are about uh, uh, 32 mutations give and take because even the Omicron itself is evolving as we speak, as different countries, for example, isolate uh, the, 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 the variant from different uh, hosts and sequencing, they are realizing that some Omicron variants have probably 30 mutations, some have 32, and so give and take plus or minus two. Mm. And all these the, the 32 ones are uh, accommodated in a single protein, the spike protein, that is the key that unlocks our cells and provides mm. access, right. uh, provides the virus access to our own cells. And then that's where the, uh, the whole um, part it begins for the virus. Um, and the interesting thing is that the virus actually has, uh, in a way, um, uh, kept, and, I, and that may be correct or not, depending how you look at the evolution, but it has actually three of the mutations that are seen in all the variant of concern that are in circulation now, alpha, beta, gamma. Mm. and delta and in addition it has added more and the way that has done it that actually is quite interesting uh, it has seven unique ones but also it has accumulated mutations that are seen here and there in other variants but they haven't been dominant in the sense that the scientists saw it in one sequence of alpha but not in the other sequence and this <laughs> variant actually accumulated all of them and made them somehow dominant and what this suggests actually suggests that this variant had some time to evolve in a particular host, mm. not by jumping host to host, mm. but very likely in one particular host. Wow. And that is the case, for example, an individual that develops chronic disease or rather chronic infections. And what I mean by that, just for example, because many of us have gone, for, for example, through bacterial infections that are chronical. And what that means is that you treat it with antibiotics, you become better, and after a month, you have to go back to the hospital because uh, uh, the infection has uh, Mm. emerged again. What that means is that the body didn't clear the bacteria completely and the bacteria was in the background. That antibiotic dose that you took actually selected for few mutants and then they took time to grow because it is costly for uh, a variant to grow. But they took time to grow, to become strong and then they uh, led to another infection. Then you treat it again, Mm. then... Uh, you kill 90%, the rest 10% are selected likely mutant, and then they move on to evolve and so on. So it, that's mm. what likely happened with this uh, uh, variant, it mm. seems. And some experts seem to uh, also agree with that theory. Oh, it's interesting. Very, very interesting. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7.
in Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on the show is Dasantilla Golemi Katra, and she is a professor of biology at York University. We're talking to her about an article she authored in the conversation. It is called Omicron. How is it different from other variants? Is it a super variant? Can it evade vaccines? And how transmissible is it? And we've all been asking these questions. So she's here to help us understand and perhaps answer a little bit of these questions, which are still being answered answered and looked at by scientists because this is such a rapidly changing and transforming uh, a variant that we're finding out. And that's one of the things she has. Is it is it a, a super variant? And, and what does that mean exactly? Uh, so uh, can you can you help us understand what it means if it's a super variant? Good question. So um, the reason I asked the question whether this represents a super variant is um, thinking that there are so many uh, mutations that are occurring in a single protein um, that would could suggest that um, this virus has become so sophisticated and so efficient, likely on uh, infecting the host, but also evading the host mm. and few more functions, for example, replicating faster. And the reason mm. um, I um, put those factors is that because of the number of, uh, of mutations. The spike protein, when, where these 32 mutations out of 50 are uh, um, accumulated, uh, serves two roles. Not only provides a key to the virus to open the access to our cells, but also um, provides the recognition point of the virus by our immune system, mm. right? A single protein. And the fact that there were 32 mutations I was actually concerned, like many others are looking after this virus, that um, not only this virus probably has become better at opening the key to our cells, but also evading the immune um, uh, uh, system. And the other question was, has this virus become better at coping itself, meaning much faster? Mm. And if all of these sort of come into place, uh, then this virus becomes a super uh, variant in terms of a uh, super-powered uh, virus and steroids, you can mm. say, supercharged, yeah. meaning is good at everything, although the likelihood of that is uh, not much. Okay, now... Uh, that's that's a, a great description of what it might be and what it might you know what what, what scientists are looking at around this uh, and yourself included. But but I guess what I'm I'm wondering about is if we go back a hundred years and we look at the Spanish flu and what was happening with that, the Spanish flu eventually just it just sort of fizzled out over a, a number of years. Uh, is that correct? Um, yes and no. So it not necessarily fizzled out, actually, it transformed itself, or to use the correct language, it evolved, it adapted itself mm. to live amongst humans. <laughs> you okay, know, yeah. uh, troubling us at times because it's like a, a flu, actually, uh, yeah. nowadays, right. but not really causing uh, any uh, major uh, damage to us. And usually uh, that seemed to be the course uh, for a number of viruses, actually, mm. that infect humans, yeah. uh, but not for all of them. So, um, and um, so when it comes to the Omicron uh, uh, variant, um, yeah, there is some uh, thinking towards uh, that, yes, indeed, uh, this uh, variant actually is very highly infectious. It is actually very good at evading the immune system, either by 
uh, gained through prior infections or through vaccines. Um, it does actually replicate faster. Uh, there was just a study published yesterday, uh, not peer-reviewed yet, but nonetheless, the data were there that indicates that it replicates faster than Delta, meaning that you get a lot of virus mm. uh, in your uh, airway than the Delta one and probably the contributing to the transmissibility. But... Um, how virulent it is right. you know uh, when you talk to a, uh, when when um when you uh, talk about a living organism uh it's a complex system even for the viruses such a, a unicellular particle uh it's uh it's still complex because there are many players there are many proteins that have to be assembled uh, uh together if you will so um through evolution or through uh you know circulating through different hosts the virus actually um and again, this goes as a result of circulating uh, in different hosts, uh, adapts to, uh, for example, to become more infections, but it has to lag somewhere mm. because things can, not everything can de develop or evolve rather in parallel. Mm. Like it cannot become uh, efficient in all the possible functioning or uh, uh, processes that the virus uh, um, sort of um, has in itself. So, and that's how I wrote in this article that, Yes, you know, it has so many mutations in the spike protein, and yes, they may indicate that it may, may be better at latching onto the um, uh, host cells and evade probably the, uh, the vaccines and the prior infections immunity, but probably is uh, less virulent because that's how it, it was selected, meaning that these mutations were selected in a way to drive the infections mm. rather than, you know, making uh, probably more uh, sick. But again, uh, unless there are definitive uh, data, uh, whatever I'm proposing remains just like that, a proposal. Yeah. But looking at sort of bacteria themselves, but also viruses, normally sometimes they go through this path because um, the way they evolve or the way the humans allow them or enable them in a way to evolve, uh, they take that path, becoming more infections, infecting more people, and uh, that propagates that mutant much further but probably uh, less severe. But again, uh, data are not there yet to, mm. to really address that point. Yeah. And viruses don't necessarily also want to kill you because they need you as a host to live. Uh, you know, that's a, um, a, it's a simple question, but uh, yet it's tricky because, you know, uh, people, I've heard also this question uh, elsewhere as well. And uh, so, so let me uh, address that actually uh, as accurately as I can. So, yes, it makes sense for a pathogen to be able to infect another host. You'd think that uh, if the host survives, then that this pathogen is likely to infect more people mm. but if the if the pathogen kills the host very quickly then obviously itself limits itself mm. so so th that is indeed the case uh, it, it's it's logical to to think that way but the risk in sort of um trivializing this process uh, is that uh, you don't know whether that organism will tame itself uh, unless you let the organism or the pathogen run its course but that may, uh, you know, that may uh, lead to a loss of uh, life being lost. Mm. And then, you know, you'll uh, get the answer. So, so there, are, uh, there are pathogens, for example, such as Ebola. Yeah. Very deadly. Yes. Uh, yes, they kill the host, but also they spread fast. But 
indeed actually um, the killer hole so quickly that uh, it does limit the, the, the transmission. Yes. But you cannot let it run rapidly because no, right. you may uh, learn as, as in uh, previous centuries with uh, throughout the human histories like plague and so on. Yeah that uh, 50%, for example, of population of Europe was just uh, banished because of such infections that were quite mm. deadly. So, so, so that's true. Um, logically, you know, um, if the pathogen uh, uh, doesn't kill the host right away, obviously it has more chances to encounter other hosts. But um, you can't let the pathogen run that way because it can indeed eliminate the 50% of the population. Yeah. And, sure. uh, then it gets el eliminated at that point, but it may be probably just uh, too much of a damage for right. uh, your humankind. Right. And thank you for pointing out that about Ebola. But we're still dealing with an airborne disease with the Omicron, correct? And we should correct. still be getting, people should still be getting their vaccines because they are effective. Correct, actually. So I'm glad, actually, that you uh, don't seem to have any doubt on that that is airborne because uh, there was a lot of discussion among scientists themselves, but there's so much data now that uh, actually um, uh, go uh, sort of confirms beyond any doubt that indeed is an airborne. Mm. And one can argue here, you know, what do you call an airborne, like two, three, four, five meters, it doesn't matter, as long mm. as a, a droplet can remain in the air for more than uh, uh, 15 minutes or can travel for more than a meter, indeed, it is an airborne. So that also increases the, um, so the challenges in uh, curbing this uh, uh, right. pandemic. Right. And uh, the other question, I believe, was on the vaccines, correct? Yes. Um, so when it comes to the vaccines and the protections that we get uh, uh, from them against this variant, so far, actually, data uh, coming from, for example, from Pfizer uh, itself indicates that um, the two-dose uh, regiment when it comes to messenger RNA vaccines uh, uh, is, uh, can uh, prevent the infection against uh, Omicron by only about uh, 30%. Mm. And that's a huge reduction from what we, um, the real-world data showed, actually, mm. uh, 80% and above. Right. Uh, and that becomes a problem because it, you know, the vaccines that don't contribute in limiting the transmission of this virus. And but when it comes to uh, uh, the two dose regimen protecting against a severe disease, there is still remaining um, actually power to the vaccines as much as seventy percent in preventing, uh, for example, uh, severe cases. But again, it's a decrease from uh, um, ninety and hundred uh, percent, especially in messenger RNA vaccines. And that's where the boosters comes into play. Um, the studies uh, uh, show that indeed this virus actually can uh, cannot be neutralized easily by so-called neutralizing antibodies. And which actually uh, put a stop, if you will, or a hurdle in uh, transmission of the virus. So the, what the booster dose does actually, it increases the amount of neutralizing antibodies by about 25 fold. I mean, that's a huge increase when wow. you consider that the virus has a much more reduced affinity for these antibodies. And that as a result, um, the third dose actually can prevent the um, this infection by as much as 70 to 75 percent wow. and obviously further uh, protection when it comes to hospitalization and severe uh, uh, illness so uh, um, but uh, and that's why actually the hurry if you will now to um, provide the boosters to as many people as possible again to just change the trajectory of uh, where the omicron is uh, headed mm. but uh, we are racing against time over there how many how fast can you actually give booster to as many as 10 yeah. million people 
yeah. it does yeah. take time. Yeah. That's where other measures actually uh, need to come mm. in order to right. um, indeed change the, cur- the trajectory of this environment. Right. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you in the future again. The pleasure was all mine. And I really appreciated your questions. Very well thought questions, well, real life questions. <laughs> thank you. I greatly appreciate that. And that is the voice of Dasintilla Galemi Katra. She's a professor of biology at York University. We've been speaking to her about her article in the conversation. It is entitled Omicron, how it is different from other variants. Is it a super variant? Can it evade vaccines? And how transmissible is it? You can find that by going to theconversation.ca. That's this portion of the show. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on the show. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to have uh, two people joining me on the show to talk about an article they co-authored in The Conversation, which you can go and check out at theconversation.ca. The article is entitled COVID-19 Vaccine Inequity Allowed Omicron to Emerge. So... It is a pleasure to have with me Don Bowdish and Chandrama Charkabardi. And they, let me tell you something about them. Uh, Don is a Canadian Research Chair in Aging and Immunity at McMaster University. And Chandrama is a Professor of English and Cultural Studies and Director of Centre for Peace Studies at McMaster University. So it's a pleasure to have them both here. So, you know, it's a fascinating topic and one that certainly needs our attention because it has allowed, as pointed out in your in, in your uh, article here, that that inequity of distribution, uh, even though we in Canada are getting our vaccines and getting our boosters now into the third you know round of these things, uh, there are countries that, and and am I understanding this that some of the countries that are actually manufacturing these vaccines are not getting the vaccines to their own people? Is that is that correct? Who would like to start that, Don? Sure. So uh, you, you've got it exactly right. I mean, the, the, there are many, 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 many issues with vaccine equity that have predated the pandemic. Uh, the fact of the matter is many of the vaccines that we're using right now, the mRNA ones, are extremely difficult to make. And they've got huge what we call cold chain problems, meaning that uh, they have to be kept frozen. And just the logistics of keeping these uh, frozen and delivered to where they need to be when they're used, they have a very short half-life. At, uh, when they get to room temperature above. So that's a problem. Mm. And so the hope was the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is uh, much more stable. It's not perfect, but it's much more stable, would be the one that many parts of the world would use. It's easier to distribute and things like that. Um, but as it turns out, sometimes it's uh, more uh, lucrative to make these vaccines in, in some parts of the world and ship them to uh, Europe and North America. So the issues are not uh, simply a matter of hoarding, although that's definitely a problem. Many of our contributions to the global community said, okay, we're going to buy so many, we're going to pay the drug companies in advance, we're going to buy so many doses, we don't need that many doses, then we'll share those. But as it turned out, you know, two doses is not enough, so now we're at three doses. And so we're whittling away that uh, commitment to the rest of the world. Um, And like I said, you know, some of these issues are also longstanding trust issues. There's, there's, vaccine hesitancy in other parts of the world as Mm. well. And sometimes, you know, the perception that we're sending them are discarded vaccines um, Mm. has been misinterpreted 
as being uh, that these vaccines are not safe or don't work as well or they weren't good enough. So we need to work on trust. We need to work on local manufacturing. And frankly, we have to work on vaccine design to make vaccines that are designed for travel and distribution, because that's a huge, huge issue. And the more isolated the country is or the less infrastructure it has, the more problematic that becomes. Okay, so you just brought up something there about uh, about design of these vaccines, which I would like to come back to, but I would like to get uh, Chandrama in here. Uh, Chandrama, with some of the things that were just brought up around trust, from what you're finding out, from your research and from the kind of work that you're involved with, what, what have you learned? Yeah, I think, you know, Dawn is exactly right there that, you know, it is not just about vaccines uh, reaching particular places, but also, uh, you know, health literacy there, the messaging about vaccines that's happening. You know, we talk so much about fake news, misinformation, Mm -hmm. and some of the countries, you know, Africa's Indian subcontinent often don't have the health infrastructure that, you know, Dawn was pointing out about, you know, storage, about, you Mm -hmm. know, having to store these uh, vaccines in very cold temperatures. Mm. and not having those facilities. And some of the mistrust also has risen because some of the vaccines that have been shipped out have a very close, very close to their expiry dates, Uh right? Often, you know, I've been reading sort of number of news reports where vaccines have shown up without really a conversation. So the countries were not expecting the vaccines at that particular moment. So they had not set up a plan for distribution and then they got wasted because they had a very little shelf life because they were so close to expiry. So there is a you know, mistrust, there is you know miscommunication. We know particularly with the case of Africa, like we've, you know, the West has done number of trials on black bodies, some of those trials that have gone very, very wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So there is that, you know, mistrust. So how do you, you know, build trust? How do you, you know, share information? How is the information about vaccines being shared? So there are, you know, multiple issues. It's not just about delivering vaccines, but also making sure that people would be willing to put those, you know, roll up their sleeves and have those vaccines in their arms. So there are multi-level issues, I think, here. Okay, thank you for that. Now, both of you address the idea of the the lifespan of these vaccines. What are the lifespans of these vaccines? I don't remember ever hearing anything about what what is the time frame that we have uh, to get these things shipped somewhere and can stay on a shelf before they need to be used. You know, I'm not sure offhand what the the uh, time limits are because one of the things that has recently changed is uh, one of the buffering ingredients has been used has recently changed and that helps keep things stable a little bit longer. So I'm not exactly sure what the expiry dates are okay. right now. But I mean, even in our own country with great in- health infrastructure, this can be a real problem um, because you once you have uh, once they hit um, a minus 80 degree freezer, which is where they sort of sit right before usage. Um, and then once they hit the fridge, then the, t- the clock is ticking for either spoilage if they're in the fridge or expiry if they're in the freezer. And even here, we've had challenges with making sure we get those to the right places at the right times. We don't want uh, any wastage, obviously, because each one is a, is a huge lost opportunity. But our northern communities, the more isolated you are, the more challenging that can be. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the organizational issue, if each file has 10 doses in it, you better make sure you have 10 people sitting right in front front of you, right? And not 11 or Mm -hmm. not nine, because both of those lead to some degree of wastage. So just the logistics 
of that alone has been really, really tough. And I remember in the early days, one of my colleagues, very, very early days, was doing uh, vaccinations for the over 80 crowd. And, you know, she was left in a situation where she only had a couple left doses in the vial. So she sent the research coordinator to go find any 80 year old they could possibly find because, you know, it was just so appalling, you know, that uh, this would go to waste. So, you know, these are these are the challenges with any sort of drugs. Um, And then you can imagine going to a hot place. Right. Uh, And then that's even more uh, challenging. For example, when we ship these, we ship them with temperature monitors to make Mm -hmm. sure that they've never gone above or below to make sure the quality isn't impacted. And uh, so shipping can be an issue. You know, countries that have uh, poor infrastructure is an issue. War and torn countries, huge, huge problems with that, with with doses Mm -hmm. getting delayed. Um, And many, many researchers, including those at McMaster, are working on on sort of uh, vaccines that can be stored at least at room temperature temperature, if not slightly above, because that will actually help with equity issues in a huge, huge way for countries that don't have the infrastructure we have. Right. And, and what would be the time frame that we might be able to see something like that coming to, you know, to the marketplace? Well, currently we're working on an inhaled vaccine at McMaster. We oh, nice. breathe it in. So I think that has tremendous advantages for the rest of the world for many reasons. Right. Needles are can be quite dangerous for the spread of uh, bloodborne diseases. Um, children and adults are often needle phobic. So that's great. And the nice thing about that, the, the vaccine that they're formulating is they knew right from the beginning, if this was truly going to be our next generation vaccine, it had to be cold chain resistant. Right. So over the past decade, my colleagues have been working on, um, on getting these uh, formulated in such a way and only moving forward in such a way that they could kept at room temperature. So I thought that was you know, incredibly important in the context of this current pandemic. And I hope that by next year, uh, we'll all be in uh, seeing the end of the phase two and three trials for these inhaled boosters. And I can hardly wait to get one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Great. Now, uh, there's so many things to talk about. You talked about the the idea of the hesitancy that, you know, a lot of people feel about this. You bring in those uh, other things uh, that Chandra mentioned about uh, misinformation if I'm understanding this correctly as well, South Africa has this uh, this incredible system that has allowed us to find the Omicron variant very quickly. Um, and yet they are struggling with so many things. I, I would think that because of this advanced system that they have, uh, other countries would be rushing to support them and help them. And in many ways, I guess they're on the forefront of all this. So it seems that that should be a place where we're really looking in, and helping is that happening? No. You know, one of my deep, deep shames as an immunologist and infectious disease specialist was uh, the fact that we've not been more proactive in helping the developing world. You know, Canada historically has not invested a lot in diseases that don't affect Canadians. So we've mm. got, you know, malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, enormous issues across the world. And Canada hasn't been a huge player in the global uh, burden of infectious disease. And as you pointed out, South Africa has actually got an incredible surveillance network for many, many infectious diseases, mm. for uh, tuberculosis, for pneumonia, for HIV, which they were able to mobilize so quickly in this context and to help us out. And I think, you know, one of the things we wrote in our article was how we need to weave in support for these other countries in as we go back and start redeveloping our own uh, vaccine manufacturing. And frankly, I think this pandemic, and I hope this pandemic has been a wake up call that we're not 
safe unless everybody's safe. Yeah, and that yeah. means parts of the world where this uh, virus is going to run rampant for decades if we can't get vaccines. Right. We'll just re-import to Canada again and again and again. So I <laughs> hope that there's a renewed passion for building international collaborations and frankly, having some humility and learning from our South African colleagues, right? They have a lot to teach us You're with right. regard to surveillance and with regard to uh, creating a surveillance, genomic surveillance, which is what we call sequencing defined uh, different variants that uh, they've been able to do under incredibly strange circumstances. We have a lot to learn yeah. and we should be open and learn from that. David, yeah, I just want to add to what um, Dawn said that, you know, the other issue with that is that, you know, we don't know if the Omicron variant actually, you know, emerged in South Africa. Yeah, they detected it, but it could have been anywhere. So when we start, you know, closing our borders and banning travelers from coming in, we are doing ourselves a disservice. As you said, we are not saying, thank you, South Africa, you found it. You've given us, you know, advance notice. We know what to do. You know, is it rolling out boosters? Is it finding new drugs, you know, discovering, detecting, right? And instead of that, we are closing borders. So that also might put, you know, other developing nations, uh, you know, to think twice about sharing information. So we won't know if, you know, variants will develop and travel and we won't be told because, well, if you say it uh, outright, this is what happened to South Africa. We closed mm -hmm. all our borders, right? So there yeah. is also that. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and I am speaking with uh, Don Bowdish and also uh, Chandrama Charkaborty. And uh, we are talking with them about their article that they co-authored in the conversation. It is entitled, COVID-19 Vaccine Inequity Allowed Omicron to Emerge. And that inequity is something that seems, I wonder if if the governments of the wealthy nations and all governments will now start to realize that this is what's happening because we've now got, how many variants have we gone through? And this is now the Omicron is being looked at perhaps as a super variant because it has mutated so quickly and rapidly and gone through, I understand this transformation that leaped far beyond what I guess the scientists were thinking it was going to do. A am I right in, in getting the sense that we look at South Africa as a place that, oh, it started there, there, they don't aren't dealing with it as well as they could, or they are insufficient in being able to combat uh, COVID like the rest of the world. Uh, wherein, whereas, in fact, that's not the case at all. And we, uh, in wealthy countries that are, you know, has been pointed out, hoarding some of the some of the vaccines, actually, we're contributing to this situation because we aren't allowing this this distribution of the vaccines to that be distributed to other countries and, and gotten into the arms of people that need them. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, of, of all the African nations, South Africa does have a larger, uh, you know, vaccination rate compared to the rest of the other countries. Mm. And, uh, but, you know, we, we don't make often make those distinctions across African nations. We just, you know, homogenize them as Africa mm. and black bodies and therefore, you know, lacking in resources, lacking in knowledge you know, not having the right information. So there are those, you know, hierarchies that we create about, you know, knowledges. And we are also not willing to share technology and the expertise that the West has, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we sort of, you know, noted in the article that, you know, local manufacturers in South Africa, for example, are making those vaccine right. doses, 
But instead of being used locally, they're being shipped out, right? Because as again, you know, we, we talked about it in the article, the Western nations had already pre-ordered it even before the vaccines were manufactured. Right. So the orders were already placed. So, you know, they're contracting out to local manufacturers in Hyderabad, in India, in South Africa, but the vaccines are not being used locally. They are shipped out, right? So there are, you know, m- multiple issues. And of course, there are the long, again, the long history of, you know, concerns about Western expertise and science, given that how science has experimented on African bodies. So there are, you know, many, many, you know, the fight has to be at multiple fronts. Mm. Uh, It's not just, you know, vaccine distribution. It's not just, you know, dealing with vaccine hesitancy, misinformation, infrastructure, as we said, there are, you know, multiple levels that this sort of war against the pandemic has to be fought. You know, when you when you talk about that, what comes to mind is that old saying about the cobbler's kids have no shoes, right? Because he's too busy working and and producing shoes for everyone else. But again, going back to that uh, that that comment that the world and we've heard about Canada and other countries putting aside the money that that are supposed to be going to uh, supply vaccines for the the countries that can't afford them. So what's going on with that if it hasn't been happening? You know, I would have thought that was an automatic thing, but I guess that isn't the case. Certainly not every country in the world bought into uh, right. the COVAX agreement. And Canada got a lot of slack before the vaccines were even available because we uh, agreed to purchase so many. And we're not crystal clear on how many we would actually be distributing to the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, I, I understand the politics must be very difficult can you imagine if we told everyone no you can't have your third dose because we're gonna not give canadians that there'd be political suicide so you know it's not that i'm not insensitive to uh the challenges of sharing resources right and i think you know when uh push comes to shove we all want our loved ones our immunocompromised people our elders all those people to get the vaccines that they need to be safe um but there has to be uh, some degree of following the science. I mean, the science is crystal clear. All of us in Canada need that third dose to fight Omicron. Mm. If we don't get that third dose, we're going to be in a very dark place. However, um, I, I and other researchers were really advocating in a pre-Omicron era that we only do that third shot when it is warranted. We right. find that we follow the science. We wait until it's needed. We don't proactively go ahead and do it because that gives us some more time to do some sharing. So I think having really, really, really a strong scientific surveillance networks who are monitoring the Canadian population and saying, now's the time, now's not the time. And making those decisions based on science will also be incredibly helpful for distribution. So what what is the situation in terms of vaccines, though? Because we're hearing that the wealthy countries are hoarding them, that we have excess, it sounds like. So it sounds like there was vaccines that could have been used. Um, so, yes, you're right. We definitely want the people to have their boosters and get them in, in, in the countries that, that have them and, and want to use them. However, uh, what about that excess? Is the delivery system, like, where is it falling short? You know, where's the gap so that those countries that aren't able to or haven't been able to access the vaccines uh, are going to be able to in the future? Because part of what we're talking about is the Omicron has come out of this fact that they haven't had the vaccines and that the virus has been allowed to mutate. So it's not really serving us in the long run to be doing it this way. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, you're right. I want to give Chandri a chance to comment on this as well. I mean, I think there's two things to think about. Our federal responsibilities and our personal responsibilities. I worry that people hearing this will say, I'm not going to take my third dose because I want that to go to, to the mm. rest of the world. That's not the right decision. Once a vaccine is here and it's yeah. in a Canadian fridge or freezer, the options are take it or have it spoil and go bad, which would be, a, you know, tragic. So on an individual level, take whatever vaccine you are offered as soon as you are offered it, because that is the right measure for public health. But on a federal level, we need to, if we're going to, we've made these agreements to buy them, instead of bringing them here, if we don't feel they need them, they have to be immediately shipped elsewhere. So it's not a matter of like, they come here and then we send them away. I mean, I think had there been the political will, Canada actually does have at least a couple small uh, and McMaster is one of them uh, places where they could have manufactured the, the AstraZeneca. Mm. And perhaps even when we decided it wasn't the right choice for our population due to the health risks, it was very much the right choice for other parts of the world. Had there been the political will, we could have been a manufacturer mm. uh, and even at McMaster before we started our own clinical trials and now have to use the facility, we had estimated we might've been able to make as many as 20 million doses. So, you know, it's small potatoes when you look at a nine billion person world, but for those, you know, those people, that 10 million people, two doses, that would have been pretty impactful. So I think, you know, we have to uh, pressure our our politicians to so that they have the political will to make this part of their mandate to speak loud and proud about sharing our mm. resources mm. and frankly, devoting some of those resources uh, to helping the rest of the world. Okay. Yeah, I'll just add to what, you know, Dawn said that, you know, buying as much as we need and, you know, making sure that things are shared before they store are stored in our freezers and they expire or near expired doses are sent out. But I think also, you know, supporting local manufacturing in other countries, you know, for instance, mm. again, I'll give you an example of India. India is the largest manufacturers of, of vaccines in the South Asian, you know, uh, uh, in South Asia. So when the vaccine production stops in India, it means Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and, you know, Pakistan are not getting their vaccines. And, and they have stopped production because they don't have the raw materials and the resources and the expertise and the technology. So it's not just about sharing, you know, a made vaccine, but also the technology and the expertise so that countries can become self-reliant rather than just, you know, depending on generosity. Mm-hmm. Right? Philanthropy is great, but... You know, if countries are wanting to be self-reliant and both South Africa and, you know, India has been saying that we want, you know, we want the expertise, you know, and and they've been saying this for over a year now, saying we need the technology and we need support and we need help. So it's not just being kind and generous, but let's also see if we can get our governments to help those nations to be self-reliant when they have some of the resources, but not enough. Mm. So sharing might be also that expertise and technology so that they can make their own vaccines and share it locally so that you don't have to worry about, you know, it expiring or, you know, what's happening in transportation. So that might be also another investment to think of. You know, what comes to mind also is, I remember hearing scientists were saying that there was going to be something like this that was going to happen. There was the Spanish flu 100 years ago, that there was going to be a pandemic at some point in the future, and now it's here. And 
there were so many things that came out of this. When you think back about how when COVID first struck here in Canada and we heard about the effect of long-term care homes. But what that also pointed out to was the inequity of, uh, of uh, the people that were working in those situations as well. And I think back now to South Africa and about the, the surveillance system they have and about how it, it seems that we have to make a lot of shifts in our thinking uh, to make sure that we we. Uh, you know, deal with these things better in the future. One of those coming back to Canada's ability to manufacture its own vaccines, which I understand we had that ability years ago and then that got cut or canceled or something. And weren't we one of the leaders or something at some point? Yeah. When I was a wee baby PhD student graduating with my PhD, I remember I got offers to come look at Merck and all these other companies that were situated in Canada because that's where young baby immunologists go. When you get mm. your PhD, you go and work mm. in that field. And uh, I'm glad I didn't take them up on those offers, otherwise I would have been unemployed <laughs> because a lot of that has left Canada. And, mm. you know, one of my personal points of pride is that I have a number of my own PhD graduates have worked in the COVID efforts in various places, but none of them have done it in Canada because we just don't have that kind of manufacturing here. So, you know, it's not a matter of build the factory and fill it up and we can start making vaccines tomorrow because it's not, this is not a job that you walk into off right. the street. You need, you know, a PhD or a master's degree or an appropriate training period. So, uh, you know, weaving training mm -hmm. into uh, our own domestic efforts, but also helping train individuals from other parts of the world will be absolutely essential. And you brought up a really important point about inequity within our own country. Let's not point fingers because we saw incredible inequity in the toll that COVID has taken, incredible inequity in distributing vaccines, even within our own uh, country. So we need to also use this as a, a lesson in humiliation because, uh, or humility, I suppose, and humiliation, uh, because this will not be the last pandemic. Frankly, the fact that we survived and didn't have SARS-1 go uh, as widely as this one is was just luck really just luck yeah. and uh, our political leaders you know tend to want to divest in public health because when public health is working nobody gets sick and it doesn't look like it's a big problem uh, but when public health falls apart this is what we end up with so mm. we really 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 need to have a pandemic preparedness and to help and part of that will be situated outside of this country because the majority of uh, pandemic viruses will originate outside of North America. And so we need to contribute to an international effort and fight this in the future. Great. Uh, Chandrama? Yeah, I think Dawn summed it up really well. I, I don't think I have anything to add. So, you know, just sort of maybe reiterate that, you know, there are inequities here and elsewhere. Uh, so often, you know, the inequities elsewhere also becomes, you know, global news, but we have lots of issues right here, right? Like right in the cities and the neighborhoods and the towns that we live in. And so there needs to be a better attention to also the gaps uh, and the gaps that have surfaced, not that the, they were new, but they've become more visible. Uh, and, you know, also trying to fill those gaps and see what went wrong. Mm. And what could be done right and, you know, having the communities, all kinds of communities, however we define communities, have, you know, a better involvement from them, you know, feedback from them, input from them so that we can collaborate and find out what the needs are and what the gaps are from those who have been affected by it. Uh, so I think, yeah, lots of work to be done. 
Okay, great. We'll have to leave it there, but it's been really fascinating. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join us on the show and share this uh, information about your article, which people can find in the conversation. Go to conversation.ca. Look for COVID-19 vaccine inequity allowed Omicron to emerge. My guests here on the show have been Don Bowdish. She is Canadian Research Chair in Aging and Immunity at McMaster University and Chandrama Charkabardi. And she has uh, is also a professor in English and and Cultural Studies and the Director of Science for Peace Studies at McMaster Universities. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.